You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, a philosophical, critical, confessional, interstitial, theological, and always delectable conversation between Christian intellectuals. Your hosts are three Christian college professors, Michael Farmer, David Grubbs, and Nathan Gilmore. episode 91 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. We're almost at the end of this fall semester. Um, I'm David Grubbs. I'm a professor of English at Central Christian College of Kansas in McPherson, Kansas, and I'm going to be your host today. Along with me is Michael Farmer, assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. How are you today, Michael? I'm being toward the end of the semester to adapt Heidegger. It is, it is like ripeness in a fruit. It comes from within me, and I'm moving toward it. <laughs> awesome. But I, I don't know um, when it'll be here. It could happen at any moment. Well, uh, chuckling along with that is uh, Nathan Gilmore, assistant professor of English at uh, Dr. Nathan Gilmore, <laughs> assistant professor of English at Emmanuel. Sorry, not Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Yeah, Emmanuel. <laughs> All right. But, uh, yeah, yeah. For 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 a second, I, I I totally I almost said Emmanuel School of Religion, and then I realized what a hilarious uh, thing that would be to say. Yeah, and you you wouldn't believe how often I have to explain the distinction back in Indiana. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, also, apologies to all the, uh, the 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 Emmanuel College folks in Franklin Springs, Georgia, with whom I actually worked. This is an <laughs> ar- not an error born of ignorance, just an error born of earliness. Um, are 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 you are you being towards the end? One day more. I- <laughs> oh my word! So yeah. so the so the bell that's tolling is tolling for you. Oh, it is. I I teach my last round of classes tomorrow. And by the time this episode drops, I will have one more final exam to give, and then my semester will be over. You monster. <laughs> yeah. Though, you know, I, I mean, it, it, we, we can, you know, we can take, take our done to heart, and if, you know, the, the bell that tolls for him, it tolls for us, too. We can think, two of our ends and plan for them. This time of the semester, uh, I always plan for my end. <laughs> A big stack of yeah. papers to grade. I have to keep yeah. sharp objects away from myself. Well, we, we've got a plane to make literally four hours after fall grades are due. So Last year... Um, see how that works last year because my wife lived in florida i got out of here as soon as i could so i could go see her and i left three hours after i gave my last final yeah graded them sitting at the airport well i got an email from (laughs) that night from this poor kid who'd slept in and missed the final and asked if he could come retake it and i said i am not in the state anymore so i guess he failed that class which uh, i'm not sure if i should feel bad about or not (laughs) i should say it was like a 
11 a.m. final. It wasn't like it was 8 a.m. I mean, he. Oh wow! Okay. He, he really overslept. You spent half a semester, or actually, you spent. Yeah, you spent a semester half a continent away from your wife. I think he could get up for a final. Two, two semesters, actually. To, uh, yeah, okay. Yes, a year. Yeah, that that only makes what I'm saying stronger. So anyway, yeah. yeah so there's my story. And you're sticking to it. Um, speaking of of uh, stories, or at least of feedback, that wasn't a good segue, but we'll 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 run with it. Um, have we got any? Well, actually, uh, in a recent episode of Theology Nerd Throwdown over at Homebrewed Christianity, they said some very, very nice things about uh, the Christian Humanist podcast. And Aww. from what we were talking about before we started recording, apparently we've gotten a spike in uh, Facebook thumbs up, in Facebook chatter, in emails to us. Uh, so we do want to say thanks to Trip and Bo over there at Theology Nerd Throwdown. Uh, it's a fine show, as we've said before. Uh, they have a perspective that is not our own, but they do it very, very well. So uh, I definitely encourage our listeners to go check them out for a very different way to take on this Christian intellectual thing. We also have an email from Carter Stepper. He says, hello, distinguished dons of CHP. I have greatly appreciated your recent episodes. Thanks for continuing to champion the cause of Christian humanism. It's a lonely place, but one worth living in. Especially interesting was the recent episode on Flannery O'Connor. I am now encouraged to read more of her works, having only read A Good Man is Hard to Find previously. I have often wondered why it is that Christianity can produce such wonderful literature in one moment and such terrible dreck in the next. A comparison <laughs> of good versus bad Christian literature would be interesting. A future episode, perhaps? Perhaps. Perhaps. I did have another idea for an episode, namely on the subject of law, such as natural law, judicial law, its role in politics, etc., I'm neither a lawyer nor aspire to be, but I would love to hear you guys discuss the subject, and I think it would be right up your alley. Hmm. Do you guys know anything about law? Very little. <laughs> uh, about law? Law. Law. Natural law, judicial law. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming I know something about natural law simply by virtue of being human, but... The other right. stuff, not so much. Yeah, I've, I've read around some in, in Catholic natural law theology. And then I actually wrote a uh, seminar paper in seminary about uh, mosaic law, specifically homicide law. So we might, we might be able to cobble together an episode. Maybe. Uh, and he said, anyways, keep up the good work. Your podcast has served to enrich my thinking and encourage me to dip into subjects I would not have thought to before. Many thanks. It has also made me, not encouraged me, forced me to dip into subjects I would not have thought to before, Carter. <laughs> so I'm sure the other guys can say the same. Indeed. Thanks. Yeah, we, we, are, we are literally stretching in front of you. Mm-hmm. The, the best yeah. thing is, and I've said this before, the best thing is uh, hearing you guys say something, and then I get to go into my classroom and say the same thing and act like I came up with it. <laughs> no, that is cool. And we provide that service to you, too, dear listener. You, too, can quote us without citing us and look smart at parties. Well, and, the right kinds of parties, anyway. And a, a quick update on the uh, Christian Humanist Chess League. Uh, I actually managed to pull out that last game against Charles. What? Uh, so yeah, yeah. Uh, so we're actually at one and one. We are in the middle of our tiebreaker game, and 
I, I feel like I've got the upper hand at the moment, but I also feel like I could lose it at any time because I'm very good at that. You know, Gilmore, um, I saw that I, – I believe Charles works at Briarcrest. I, I saw that his school has yeah. an opening for an English lit professor. You could go have actual chess games with him. <laughs> I, I could, I could, or I could stay at Emmanuel and play online. <laughs> and and, and not, move to, not move to Canada. Yeah. All apologies to our Canadian friends. I mean, yeah, I well, basically uh, yeah. live in Canada without the uh, universal healthcare. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the only the only thing that I would have against living in Canada is that it would be even further away from all of my family. Wait, that's that's a pro or a con? <laughs> <laughs> that for me is a con. So, do we have any more feedback? A uh, few people have said some things on the blog about the Crusades episode. I believe you, David, have responded to them as the person among us who knows the most about the Crusades. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, I did want to say that, that, that I feel incredibly stupid for completely leaving out um, the missionary m- impulse, in uh, particularly the later Middle Ages, to Muslims. I mean, Thomas Aquinas wrote what he considered to be an apologetic theological manual for missionaries to Muslims. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and yeah, that was, that was, that was also something that was present and present and prominent people. And I feel actually kind of terrible that I got through that whole episode and never kind of hat tipped the fact that there actually were people in Christendom who kind of wanted to convert, well, convert the pay in in some way other than with a sword, but oh well, Uh, But I'll not let the Crusades invade this episode. (laughs) All right. Well, let's uh, segue neatly, see how I did that, Um, into our topic for today, uh, which was suggested by – oh, I've forgotten over the week. Coyle Neal. Yeah, yeah, it was Coyle. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. See, I I I was looking at his name uh, on a comment in the Crusades that I have yet to respond to. Um but yeah, yeah, he suggested dystopias, um, kind of like post-apocalyptic, but not. So I guess we better start off by explaining explaining what it is and what it isn't. Um, I'll I'll pitch this one at you, Nathan, because you're our you know you you wear our Renaissance hat with the big feather on it. <laughs> so um, if you could explain the term, you know, what's a dystopia? Um, has it got anything to do with other sorts of topia, like fruitopia or other kinds? Fruitopia, yeah. a timely yes. reference, David. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, well, uh, to start off with that uh, Greek root topos, it is, in its most basic sense, a place. Uh, so in rhetoric, the topics are common places where you can establish common ground with your audience. Uh Topography uh, is the science of making maps that indicate the shape of a place where the high elevations are and low elevations are. Uh, Utopia uh, is simply the compound Greek word, uh, the prefix ou, which means not, uh, and topos, which means a place. And it's the title of a book by Thomas More, uh, the English Renaissance humanist. And it is a 
Moore's book is a dialogue uh, in a very straightforward sense about a place which doesn't exist. Uh, and it is a thought experiment to uh, explore the possibilities of politics in the absence of actual human history. Uh, so a dystopia, uh, the DYS prefix, uh, generally carries with it connotations of disease or degeneration or some sort of warping. Uh, so a dystopia, in a straightforward etymological sense, is a place uh, that is like a utopia, except instead of an experiment in good possibility, it is an experiment in bad possibility. Uh, it's a sort of literature where you get to invent an alternative history uh, and in which that history can bear out the consequences of the ideas that you find most odious. Uh, so predictably, dystopian fiction tends to be uh, very politically loaded. Uh, some people have criticized it as ideological uh, it is possible to write good dystopian fiction, I'm going to argue, and we'll talk about that later on in the episode. Uh, but, you know, if, if we're talking about, you know, for instance, when we talked uh, several episodes ago about mystery fiction, if the temptation there is to turn it into a formula plot, the great temptation for the dystopia is to turn it into propaganda. Mm. So... Cut that bit. That was a fail. Now, can we make any useful distinctions between, I guess, what we would consider a true dystopia and just run-of-the-mill tyranny or social awfulness? I mean, oh, sure, we can. Okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, you know, uh, first of all, you know, tyrannies and social awfulness actually happen in history, whereas yes. dystopia is, I mean, very specifically a literary genre, and then even in literature. Uh, I would make the distinction between, uh, for instance, something like Shakespeare's King Lear, where obviously you've got a kingdom that has fallen apart, uh, and then on the other hand, uh, something like Brave New World, uh, where the social awfulness, to use your phrase again, uh, is the direct result of a certain political ideology. So in okay. other words, King Lear's you know, wrecked Britain is the result of his own personal irresponsibility, but it's not the result of a, an ideology playing out. Okay. Well, I have the impression that dystopias are pretty much an exclusively modern obsession, at least all the ones that I know of, um, you know, come from the past hundred years or so. Um, and certainly they didn't have that name until after Moore had named his utopia, um, long after, if I remember correctly. Um, now, I may be wrong, though. So, Michael, um, I mean, are there is there any kind of ancient classical or medieval or anything like before Thomas More kind of thing that seems to qualify as a real dystopia? Well, uh, no. Okay. <laughs> uh, not under the definition Nathan just gave. Not that I know of. I mean... I've read a fair bit of Greek and Roman literature. I don't know much at all about the medieval era. The only thing I could think of, and Nathan kind of diffused this before I even began saying it. Oh, I'm sorry, man. <laughs> well, that's okay. Um, the only thing I could think of was Oedipus Rex. Oh, oh is, yeah, yeah. Which is kind of a society built on... It, it, it is supposed to be a utopia, and it looks like it's going to be when Oedipus first arrives in uh, Thebes. He fixes everything, everything gets better, and then all of a sudden everything just goes to hell. And it is, it's not the, the result of a conscious political program. 
but it is the result of unconscious program doesn't seem the right word but um unconscious sins on the mm-hmm. part of on on the part of the leaders of the society and so uh that that was the only thing i could think of certainly you get this disease that's ravaging the city uh you get the real sense that the city has fallen apart on a spiritual level it's 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 not brave new world but i i do think it's more than just what Nathan described about King Lear, more than just a, a society gone to pot, it is pre-dystopian mm. in its way. What, what about, I mean, you, you mentioned Oedipus Rex, and, and that, that, that took me to one of the, one of the sequels. Um, what about Antigone? Yeah, uh, Antigone has the, the, the same idea, because you get, you get the conflict between... We talked about this in our Sophocles episode, the conflict between social virtue and personal virtue. And mm-hmm. and to the degree you think Crayon is, is the villain of that piece, uh, yeah, I, I could see how it's dystopic. I don't tend to think of Crayon as a villain in Antigone, uh, especially yeah. since he is largely the good guy in Oedipus. I don't think of Antigone as the villain either. I'm not sure that piece really has a villain. It's just um, It's just about the conflict between virtues. Um, but yeah, I think I think a certain reading of Antigone would have that also as a dystopia. A lot of those tragedies, I suppose, if you really look at them, are dystopic. Um, again, pre-dystopic. Not they're not perfect okay. ideal, uh, realizations. Right, right. Of form, in, instead of instead of ideologies, you've got gods right. in a very straightforward sense. And you know, the modern age tends to read gods as ideologies, right? Right, right, right. That, so so it's it it has more to do with the fact that the that the pre-moderns aren't political in the same sense, maybe? Uh, I, I would say that they're not ideological in the same sense. Okay. okay. I, I think, and I, you, guys can, you guys can fight me on this, I think a certain level of technology is necessary to have a dystopia. You, you, oh, you that's have, interesting. You, you, have okay. to have, you have to have a certain type of social control. Mm-hmm. I mean, 1984 couldn't happen without. And I know we'll. I'm sure we're going to talk ad nauseum about. Yeah, I know it's hard not to mention these books before we get to them, David. Ni- sorry. <laughs> 1984 is the one you can assume everybody at least knows if they haven't read it. But I mean, 1994 can't take place without the screens, right? It, it, right. The, the, the book is nonsense without that. And so, I, I think that's why you don't see them until the modern age. You you lack the sort of. Uh, electric technology and and really we're talking about the electric age even more than just the modern age because more may Mm -hmm. talk about utopias but the dystopias don't really come about i uh i think i read somewhere the first one's in like the 1830s which is before the telegraph but uh they really take off with the with electric technology oh interesting okay (laughs) i if i could add just a couple texts david i mean one of them that came to mind when i read this question would be uh the histories of herodotus uh, and I mean, it's not as Michael said. I mean, it's hard to imagine a a dystopia in the modern sense without a certain technological sophistication. Uh, but you definitely get the sense in Herodotus that the Persia of Xerxes is actually motivated by this sort of Oriental ambition uh, that just isn't present in the Greeks of Herodotus's histories. So, I mean, it, it's one of those things, I mean, that was about the closest thing that I could come up with, the idea that there is a clash of, at the very least, political philosophies that makes the uh, Persian Empire something monstrous for Herodotus in, in a way that Athens and Sparta are not monstrous. Okay. 
I mean, you know, that they, that they can be that they can be sinful, they can make wrong steps, but they are human wrong steps. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, we seem to have already um I mean, it, it, it seems as if we are generally conceding that the modern era is where the dystopia really comes into its own. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're you're our you're our, you know historical contingency guy, Nathan. So, <laughs> um, can you can you pitch us some reasons for that? I mean, what about a dystopia? Does a modern, whether late or post or early or whatever, whatever kind of modern you got? I mean, what are what's so fascinating about them? Well, it's interesting you bring up postmodernism because, you know, of course, uh, uh, Leotard's basic definition of postmodernism that gets cited as an ad nauseum uh, and honestly, I think, gets stretched out of shape in more cases than it should, but that's another podcast for another day, uh, is a suspicion of meta narratives. And the way that Leotard defines a meta narrative is a, a grand story of human progress. Uh, so for Leotard, I mean, the meta narratives really are the Hegelian capitalist meta narrative on one hand, and the Marxian historical revolution meta narrative on the other hand. And he says that you know the postmodern is when you start to get suspicious of those forward-moving narratives. All right. So really, I mean, the dystopian novel is a species of that postmodern mindset, right? Uh, it's this idea that what the officials and the people in power will call progress uh, is in fact something that tramples underfoot the actual human beings uh, that make it up. And I mean, that's why the great dystopian novels, I mean, you don't just remember the society, you don't just remember Big Brother, you don't just remember uh, the drug regime in Brave New World, uh, but you remember the human characters that inhabit and struggle against those grand systems. So, you know, it, it really is, I mean, that idea that you have to have an ideology of this is better than what it was before and the human cost is ultimately worth uh, what came before. And actually, I and I'm, I'm sorry, David, I'm backtracking on you. That makes me think that uh, Mark Twain's uh, Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court might be a species of dystopianism. Mm. But well, it certainly I, seems to be a disaffection with um, modern trust and its own um, its own tendencies. Oh, sure, and I'm, I, I can't even remember the narrator's name, Michael. You might be able to help me on that. Uh, but I mean, you know, the way that I read that novel, I mean, I think Mark Twain is trying to make the narrator character more than a little bit monstrous when he says things like, you know, in order to get the benefits of modern society, it's worth having a reign of terror. I mean, I think that's supposed to be ma- ma- marginally spooky. <laughs> so the, the narrator doesn't have a name as far as I can tell. Uh, oh, okay, that's why I can't remember it. Yeah, I, the, I wanted the character's to call him... name is Hank. Oh, okay, it's it's not a first... Per- See, it's been so many years, Michael. I thought it was a first-person novel. I'm it's, sorry. I, I haven't read it in a long time either. I'm looking it up. I, I, okay, all right, all right. I, I, think well, it I, is, I think it is a narrative within a narrative. Okay, all right. And, you know, I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean to spring that ex post facto, but uh, that novel just made me think of, you know, this uh, suspicion. And again, I mean, it's a very, very literary move, and that's why, you know, postmodern philosophy has tended to be picked up more by literary and theological types than it has by 
you know, Anglo-American analytic philosophers, right? Because, I mean, it does have this strong uh, humanistic, sometimes individualistic, but always uh, personality-driven element to it. Uh, and again, you know, I, and I realize I'm wandering all over the place now, David, but, um, no <laughs> you know, I, I think that because dystopian fiction is a postmodern move, you really have to have that Hegelian or that Marxian background for it to make sense. Okay. Yeah, you have to have the, the attempt to, well, essentially set up utopias. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you have to have an, an enlightenment to critique. Yeah. Okay, and and I, I I know we're we've been, well actually we haven't even been resisting, but at least attempting <laughs> to stem the tide of floods of examples. That's right. Big Brother so, didn't want us to talk about these books, but we did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, well. Now I'm going to you know loose the floodgates. Um. So let's point to some dystopias, um, literature, film, other media. Um, stuff that's been notably influential or significant or, you know, neat. And uh, what what kinds of anxieties do they manifest or utopias do they want to poke holes in? Um, I'll let you go first, Michael. Well, I'm going to take the obvious one. I'll let Nathan talk about Brave New World, which I haven't read since high school. Oh, I was going to talk about William Gibson, so you can talk about both if you want to, or we can leave Huxley to David. Well, I'll talk about 1984 anyway. All right, hit it, man, hit it. Um, this is this is the classic. As I said earlier, it's the one everybody at least knows about. It it, it features a totalitarian government that seems, uh, I I would say it is secretly or not so secretly based on the Soviet Union, um, in in which thought is controlled, in which speech is controlled. That they, they control the people by using a variety. They call it a double think words that don't mean what they seem to mean. Um, we have three massive governments who are constantly at war with each other. Uh, it, it really sets up a lot of the terms of what we think of as dystopian literature. Uh, the, the the famous parts of this novel are so famous we probably don't even need to go over them. <laughs> uh, right. B- Big Brother, as you say, is always watching you. You have, you have a love story at the center of this and the love story ends up uh, spoiler alert! Betraying the main character, <laughs> and it, uh, he he ends up being tortured with the things that frighten him the most. It's it's really all the major tropes of modern dystopian literature, if not come from 1984, appear in 1984. It is, if not the first example, it is the most famous example. And uh, I imagine if you're writing a dystopia, you're always writing underneath the shadow of 1984. Oh, sure, sure. What we forget is that it's really a pretty moving book. Uh, the, the the humanity at the center of that story really is... It, it, it feels legitimate and real in a way that I think gets covered over in the uh, in the way we talk about 1984. Mm-hmm. And uh, for, as, as you were just mentioning, Nathan, for dystopian literature to work, you really do have to... You have to be able to feel something for the, the people at the center of it, the people who are fighting against it. Oh, absolutely. It also yeah. has a downer ending, as many, if not all, <laughs> dystopian novels do. Mm-hmm. Although it, it has that weird epilogue, though, that is coldly optimistic. Now tell me about it, Nathan. Well, I mean, uh, you know, the section, you know, 
the epilogue to 1984 is an essay on doublethink and newspeak. Uh, and it is narrated from the perspective of, you know, this, these are the tools that this failed regime attempted to use to control its people. And it's all narrated as a, a, you know, a historical moment that is regrettable, but it is past us now. Uh, so, I mean, you know, the epilogue sort of gives you the sense that although Winston ultimately could not resist this, uh, ultimately the regime itself could not resist history. So, I mean, it's, you know, it, you still feel like crap because Winston's soul has been lost, but yeah. histo- history has moved on and Big Brother ultimately doesn't remain in power. Spoiler alert. <laughs> um, the other thing people forget about that, because that, that book is beloved by conservatives, we forget that it is written by a socialist. Yeah. <laughs> uh, George, George Orwell is not a conservative. He is he, he was a he was a socialist who hated communism. And we forget that in the middle of the 20th century, nobody hated communism more than the socialists. So right. Conservatives, be careful before you pick up uh, 1984 as your example of why Obamacare is a bad thing. Well, it's interesting, Michael. <laughs> I, I always think of 1984 as a book beloved by the party without the guy in the White House. Yeah. Well, that, yeah. <laughs> Because for about eight years there, 1984 was the favorite book of Facebook Democrats. Yeah, well, I, I mean, to me, it's it's more, it's more a book about how how totalitarian control um, is done uh-huh. um, on the inside of human minds mm-hmm. than it is about um, some kind of particular economic ideology. Oh, yeah, sure, that, sure, that's fair enough, it's and that's an why it's so valuable. <laughs> Right. I mean, in a way that, I mean, I can't imagine, for instance, Jim Dobson holding up the Handmaid's Tale as, you know, hey, you know, this is just like our situation. Yeah, because if right. he did that, he would be the bad guy. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Where, 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 but what, what I'm saying is, whereas anyone can hold up 1984 and say, yeah, those suckers who are holding power right now, they're just like Big Brother. Is that right. is that a failure of the book? Do you think? Do you think? Uh, oh, I or- think that's the great success of the book. Okay, because uh, yes. Orwell's all, Orwell's turned the bad guys into such unrelatable monsters that that it doesn't make anybody think twice about themselves. Well, no, I think he's turned the bad guys into whoever's in power that uses a certain set of tools. Right, to right. Um, and so, so that he he's not saying it's only communist or it's only fascists or it's only i don't know whatever fill in the blank that uses these tools it doesn't really matter what their end is right who sets out to hunt monsters should be careful lest he become a monster yes it's it's you know it's basically saying beware those who walk around with hammers because they think you look like a nail but but my point is this um, the, the Democrats, when Bush is in office, can can hold up 1984. When the Democrats get into office and continue the bu- the Bush policies, they don't they don't say, "Hey, we sound like Big Brother." The the, the book doesn't offer any kind of self critique, in a way that um, a, a, another dystopia like Walker Percy's Love in the Ruins really does, uh, mm-hmm. because it it really does take on both sides in specific and uh, if not relatable, at least relatably satirical ways well yeah i mean i've said more than once that 1984 is a novel to read when you're a paranoid 17 year old that that is my point i mean you know yeah i mean if if you're looking for you know nuanced self-examination yeah i think you're right michael i mean it's 
it's very easy to locate Big Brother somewhere out there. Uh, but, I'm, you know, ultimately, I don't, I don't think that's a total failure of the novel. No, <laughs> no it's, it's just the, the novel's not doing what I would like it to do. Which is, okay, that's fair <laughs> enough. No, that, no, which is the novel's I, fault, right? Yeah, no, I totally understand that. I do. <laughs> well, uh, do, do you have any recommendations for uh, dystopias that you can read after you're a paranoid 17-year-old, Nathan? Yes, I do. And and actually, these I read when I was a paranoid 16-year-old, uh, but I've revisited <laughs> them as an adult. And I mean, they are just far richer once you've had some life experiences. And they are the uh, cyberspace trilogy of William Gibson. Uh, Gibson is a Canadian... Uh, novelist, formerly a science fiction writer, although several years ago he wrote a manifesto about how science fiction has become impossible uh, because by the time your novel gets to the bookstore, someone's invented something to make it look quaint. Um, but uh, the Cyberspace Trilogy, I mean, is really a, a species of dystopia uh, in which the political target is a lot harder to put your finger on. Uh, and really, I mean, the big enemy in uh, William Gibson's novels more generally, but especially in those uh, cyberspace novels, which, by the way, are uh, 1982's Neuromancer and then Count Zero and then... Um, oh, jeez. Mona Lisa it's some, Overdrive. It's, Yes, Mona Lisa. Over, I'm like, it's something overdrive, and I, I, I couldn't get Bachman-Turner out of my head. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, so, you know, in these novels, I mean, the real enemy is the grand ambition of consumer capitalism. Uh, and in this story, I mean, the settings for the scenes are most famously cyberspace, which is a concept that William Gibson invents this uh, area where everyone is disembodied uh, because they com connect to each other only through digital mediation. Uh, and therefore, you know, I mean, everyone is always self-inventing and therefore there is no personal stability. Uh, and incidentally, I mean, Count Zero, the character Count Zero is someone who has lapsed into a coma, but his digital persona persists in cyberspace, which is you know, back when I read it in high school, that was the scariest thing I could ever imagine. Uh, and of course now, I mean, you know, uh, now that Facebook has been around for almost a decade, all of us have stories about, you know, Facebook saying, hey, you haven't contacted this person in a while and you realize that they died two years ago. Um, or at least I think all of us have those stories. Maybe not. Uh, but <laughs> heard them. Well, yeah, I, you know, I, I guess I just kind of revealed more about myself than about Facebook. But um, at any rate, you know, in these novels, uh, the, the signs of utopia are these grand projects, you know, whether they be, you know, the geodesic dome uh, that lies in ruins because they ran out of funding. So it becomes a, a lair for squatters, uh, whether it be cyberspace itself that has all of this, you know, potential for personal exploration but becomes an arena for criminal activity all of these things in william gibson's novels especially the cyberspace trilogy uh they aren't necessarily the active products of an active regime but rather they are the ghosts of capitalist ambition that become the dystopian arena 
Uh, now, David, before I kick it over to you, I just have to mention real fast, uh, you know, the most recent uh, dystopian craze, of course, is the Hunger Games trilogy. Yeah. Uh, and I think, I mean, it is a very, very valid heir to George Orwell because all of the criticisms of those novels have to do with the fact that there is almost no way to imagine yourself as the capital. Uh, you know, I mean, you are always uh, Katniss. You are always District 13. Uh, you are always the underdog and the evil reality TV gladiatorial slave masters are always those people. Uh, so, I mean, what Michael was saying about, you know, the critiques of Orwell carry over very nicely into, you know, the latest young adult dystopian universe. Do you, do so, you think that's a problem, Nathan? I mean, is there a sense in which books like that just become propaganda? I don't know. I mean, if I ever found myself saying that, then I would have to give an account for texts like the Book of Revelation or William <laughs> Franklin's Piers Plowman. Uh, I mean, that I just wouldn't be com comfortable dismissing those texts because they are one-sided. So, I mean, I, I have to say that, you know, because I don't like the content of the one-sidedness, I'm going to be uncomfortable with it. I don't know that I would say it is a literary failure for a text to be one-sided. Yeah, I mean, and even propaganda is a devil term that not everybody would accept as a devil term. Oh, sure, sure. So. Right. Well, I, I don't think it's the job of every novel to to humanize or to 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 um, create a, a chance for empathy with the character in the antagonist position. I mean, I, I don't know that that's necessarily a responsibility of every work of fiction. Right, right, and I mean, even things it that just are, needs to be done sometimes so that it happens to you. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And I'm just thinking, I mean, even a book, you know, the very, very highly esteemed as literary fiction, like uh, No Country for Old Men by Cormac McCarthy. I mean, the character of Anton Chigurh. I mean, I've never met anyone who can sympathize with that. And notice, I don't even say him. <laughs> yeah, he's he's, yeah. he's almost he's he's an Ubermensch. Oh, yeah, yeah, and I mean, so I, I guess, you know, my, my like I said, I mean, I, I'm very, very hesitant to say that, you know, the entirely unsympathetic character is a literary failure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we have Flannery O'Connor, and she does that job for us. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, though, I mean, I, I, I wanted to mention one that's, you know, not famous. Um, mm hmm in, in, in the sense of these, uh, that we've mentioned. And there's just so many, um, Oh, so, sure. And, we're, and so many fun ones. <laughs> yeah. We're going to, we're going to be leaving things out. Um, I just feel, you know, uh, sort of professionally and personally obligated to tip my hat towards, um, a significant chunk of the return of the King that got left out of the movies. Ah, <laughs> yeah. The scouring of the Shire. Yes. Um, yeah, in the movies, the hobbits get to come back to the Shire as it was, essentially unchanged. And they're all the uh, same size. Yes, they they, they show <laughs> up, and everyone in the Shire is like, where'd you guys go? We're still here being hobbits. Um, but that is not the way it happens in the book. Um, when the hobbits get back to the Shire in the book, the Shire is a completely different place. Um it's pretty old. 
Yeah, well, pretty old buildings <laughs> have been pulled down, um, and in their places are um, these uh, horribly ugly, mass-produced, uh, how, shoddily produced. Um, you know, I guess I, I, it's, it's only this. This is clearly an English person looking at modern architecture, going, "Ew." Um, <laughs> the houses, uh, factories, where the old mill used to be. And it's a police state. The the sheriffs, uh, the 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 former law enforcement of the Shire that used to be only about you know chasing lost cows and you know you know running running off poachers and things like that. Um, they are uh, they are now a greatly expanded force, and they keep everyone under constant observation to make sure that they are keeping the rules which is this very long list of things that they are to do and not do. Um, in fact, uh, at one point, Mr. Frodo is, uh, is accused of tearing up rules, which is itself a violation of rules. Um, it's a really, it, it, it's, it's an interesting thing because it's so jarring. Um, I remember how jarring it was the first time I read the books and I got to that point and thought, mm -hmm. what? What's that? What? <laughs> it, um, now I go back to it, and uh, it, it makes it makes a good deal of sense. You know, Tolkien's making the point that the Shire isn't a safe place, mm -hmm. um, not just from threats on the outside. Um, the point is made in there that uh, by by one Hobbit, I can't remember who says this, but that even during the old days, there were always those who got some pleasure in pushing other people around and meddling in other people's business and having other people do things the way they wanted them done. Mm -hmm. And that's the interesting thing here is that the boss, the you know big brother in this sense, started off being Lotho Sackville Baggins, who is the son of the odious Sackville Bagginses who occupied Bag End after Frodo moves out. Um, this is their son. He set himself up as as the big man and apparently started issuing rules um, as a way of uh, sort of enforcing his own personal preferences and uh, making sure that other people weren't wasting time so much. Um, he didn't hold with beer, and so he banned it and closed the inns, um, <laughs> you know, and so forth. It's you know, ben, which, which Ben Franklin which, Baggins. <laughs> Yes, which which to a hobbit, um, that's like you just took away my rights, man. Um, sounds they're, like they're, he, it sounds like he opened a Christian college to me. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm just gonna let that one lie there. Uh huh. <laughs> Listen to our Christian college episode, dear, dear listeners. There you go. Uh, anyway, it, it starts off with Lotho Baggins. With the best intentions, thinking everyone around him is doing things wrong, and he, by virtue of his his position of economic power, um, can gradually leverage that into getting other people to do things better. Um, the problem is, is that Lotho can't keep control of the thing that he starts. Um, in the end, someone else takes control, and that person has no desire. Um, to seek other people's good, even if he has errant ideas of what that good is. Um, mm -hmm. His desire is only to exercise power 
and to enjoy the harm that it inflicts. And ultimately, um, ultimately Lotho, Lotho perishes, um, trapped in, um, trapped in the dystopia that he wanted to be a utopia. Um, so, so, you know, we, in the end, I think you do empathize with Lotho, um, even though everybody disliked him in the end, everybody pitied him because, um, because he stopped being the boss and started being the pitiful person who was trapped when they learned the whole story. Um, and even, even in the police state, you've got a scene with Sam Ganji talking to one of the sheriffs uh, who has to enforce the rules. And he's like, you know, you're, you're a good kid. Why are you doing this? And he says, well, I was a sheriff before this started. And then, and then the boss got in and the rules, the rules got put in place. And so I just had to keep doing it. Mm-hmm. And Sam says, why don't you stop? He says, we're not allowed to. And then Sam threatens to punch someone if they keep saying not allowed. <laughs> so, you know, he, he, it, it, I, I think the scouring of the Shire does um, does something that 1984 uh, didn't, as you guys are observing. Mm-hmm. Um, it shows us the boss and it shows us the the hands of the boss, so to speak, um, in the enforcers. And um, ultimately, this dystopia is overturned, um, though its scars remained. And the sheriffs who formerly had enforced the rules and pushed people around, um, they all seem to repent and get reintegrated into society. They don't get, you know, put up against the wall and shot, you know, mm-hmm. the hobbits revolt against this dystopia, but they don't have a bloody revolution for the most part. Um, now I think we've, we've kind of hinted at this, um, when we talked about 1984, that everyone's familiar with the tropes, yes? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of times that seems to me that that's what dystopia in various media is, a series of tropes. Yeah. Um, so are any of these stale and silly or and really just kind of need to be you know, put out to pasture? Oh gosh. Well, I, and this one probably gave me the most occasion for thought, David, uh, because I mean, there is one convention of the dystopia that when done well is actually quite good, but when done poorly, uh, just makes me want to leave the movie theater, throw the book, whatever, uh, the medium demands. And that is the dystopian catchphrase. Uh, you know, famously, you know, war is peace, uh, lies are truth, so on and so forth in 1984. Um, and, you know, I mean, like Michael said, I mean, unfortunately, when people think about that novel, those sorts of things often overshadow the humanity of Winston and Julia. Uh, and, you know, uh, in every uto- or dystopia, pardon me, that I can think of, Uh, people have taken that idea of the catchphrase and run with it. You know, famously, you know, the Hunger Games has, you know, may the odds be ever in your favor. Um, But, you know, it's one of those things where these really are, I mean, the marks of the good writer who happens to write dystopia and the mediocre writer who can only write dystopia. Uh, There are some dystopian catchphrases that are just so ham-fisted that, you know, you just want to 
like I said, turn it off, whatever it is. Um, and I mean, you know, honestly, I mean, may the odds be ever in your favor. Uh, in the movie version, at least, my wife tells me it isn't nearly as overplayed in the novels. Uh, but by the second or third time they say that, I was rolling my eyes and, you know, wishing that I, you know, had the apparatus to have a drinking game at that point because it just got silly in a hurry. <laughs> Michael, can you think of any others? I mean, that's the one that, you know, uh, strikes me is that, you know, the attempt to create the new language. Uh, I, I think I think this one has largely gone by the wayside and it was mostly in the movies anyway, but the matching jumpsuit society. Oh, yeah. The yeah. costumes. I'm not sure if I'm CH. tired of that one or if I miss it, but uh, for a while there, every dystopic <laughs> film, everybody wore the same white jumpsuit. Uh-huh. THX 1138. So Logan's Run, I believe. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. That that that's what came to my mind. Oh, you either get that, you either get the shiny white dystopia, or you get the super gritty, uh, rundown city like in Looper, the movie the movie Looper. That that that's the kind of grimy city dystopia. Mm-hmm. Okay. Kind of a noir dystopia. Uh huh. Which is always how I imagine the Gibson novels, although I, uh, I haven't read them, so I don't know. Are those, uh, are those pretty grimy? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone's wearing black leather yeah. and mirror shades. And I mean, that, you know, that became sort of the joke of the cyberpunk phenomenon is that you know, it, they are science fiction novels set 10 years in the future where it rains every day and everyone wears black leather. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I would like to see a, a middle ground between those two dystopias. Uh-huh. Which, which I guess Looper kind of offered because so much of it. I don't know if you guys seen that movie. It's really good. Uh, no, I haven't. So, so much of it takes place on a farm. Huh. Okay. Hmm. So, well, so, I mean, it, it's funny because the uh, the current uh, TV series Revolution uh, definitely goes the direction of the everyone wears leather coats, although it's more of a Civil War leather coat rather than a 1980s punk band leather coat. Right, because they don't have any power. Right, right. So is all of the leather-clad beshadedness of the Matrix films, that's, that's, that's just the, the jumpsuit of the, na- of the late 90s? Oh, yeah, and the fact that everyone exists in cyberspace. Yeah, I mean, they plagiarize William Gibson. There's no way around that. Okay. <laughs> are, uh, are people done talking about like, the, uh, those movies as if they had something to say? Um... I, and I'm, oh, I'm going to get in trouble here after we said something <laughs> nice about homebrew Christianity. But, uh, you know, the the only place I still see people talking about the Matrix is generally in the most recent book by some emergent church guru. Hmm. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. In, in In retrospect, I remember how I remember how blown away I was the the, the when I saw that first film in the theater and now I look back on it and it seems as in my mind, it's now assembled of tropes. Oh, yep. Oh, sure. Sure. I mean, maybe, maybe that's just my memory leaving out the interstitial (laughs) narrative, but you know, all, all I see in my mind now is like long black leather coats with sunglasses, Kung Fu fighting. Mm. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think you're right. I think it is just. I mean, it's it's it, it's it's kind of what happens when someone without much to say does a dystopia. Okay. Yeah, a collection of tropes, I think, is about right. 
Right, right. But I mean, it's basically William Gibson meets Terminator. I mean, is there any really is there really anything bad in a lazy or badly executed dystopia? I mean, is is it just artistically bad, or is there some kind of danger there? It, it offers no opportunity for reflection on anything, as far as I can tell. It's more like, oh, what, wouldn't it be weird if this is true? It's the sort of thing you come up with when you're smoking weed your freshman year of college. <laughs> I've never smoked weed, not, but not I imagine... At a, not, at a Christian, not at a Christian college, though. Not at my college, Prison. anyway. Uh, I, I, it, I, I don't know. The, 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 best, the best novels and films give you something to think about in yourself, and I don't feel like that one does at all. But maybe okay. I'm wrong. Oh, see, that's interesting. I, I thought that the first one actually did a fair job, I mean, with the character of Cypher, mm. presenting this <laughs> idea that, you know... Uh, what people want when they are liberated is to go back to Egypt. All right. So, I mean, I, I, and, and, you know, maybe I was the one person in 1998 who identified with Cypher, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, but man, I, I, I identified with I, a guy who could do Kung Fu through a wall. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess because I'm existentially <clears throat> incapable of identifying with Keanu Reeves, that's, that's where my soul <laughs> gravitated in that movie. <laughs> Who decided that he should be the one to set people free from the machines? Uh, because Will Smith turned down the role. Oh, that's right. Yeah, because remember originally it was supposed to be, uh, you know, it was supposed to be Val Kilmer as the wizard figure and Will Smith as the hero. But huh. then they flipped it, and Larry Fishburne became Morpheus and Keanu Reeves excuse, Neo. Excuse me, Nathan. He's a serious actor now. He's not Cowboy Curtis anymore. He goes by Lawrence Fisher. <laughs> hey, I, I I called him Larry Fishburne when he played in Othello, and I really like that. So, <laughs> well, I, I always thought that Keanu was a perfect cast because um, you were never quite sure whether he's a machine or a man. <laughs> I, but you know, I, I mean that that that, that kind of makes sense. I mean, it seems as if a dystopia dystopias were invented. Um, in order to do a particular kind of work, and if you just boil it down to the tropes, it no longer does that work, um, except for the, the the entertainment part of it. But yeah, um, I, but I mean, honestly, I mean, the big flaw of the Matrix, and again, I, I chalk this up partly to Keanu Reeves, mainly because of my visceral incapability of identifying with Keanu Reeves. But I mean, there's very little humanity at the core of the Matrix. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, when when the core of your human appeal is Keanu Reeves, you're in trouble. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wonder though, uh, how many utopias have you guys have you guys read? None. Uh, Thomas More. <laughs> um, because it, it, it's kind of funny because you listen, you know, you uh, you start talking about dystopias and you and you start thinking of all these examples. But utopia is not really something that that we know enough we know a lot about. But nonetheless, right? I mean, I guess Candide, if you count uh, El Dorado. Yeah, El Dorado and Candide. Uh, Brian, um, uh, at the end of New Kind of Christianity, Brian McLaren presents a particularly <laughs> infuriating <laughs> utopia where everybody's a moderately liberal Democrat who doesn't eat meat. Yeah. Uh, oh. uh, Bacon's New Atlantis. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Is, is at least the start at a utopia. Right. Um, but then there's things like Vril, The Coming Race by uh, Bulwer-Lytton in the 19th century. Lost which, there. It was a dark and stormy um, night. 
Yes, literally. It's the dark and stormy night guy. Oh, but no he kid. wrote Yeah, he wrote this other novel that uh this was also a genre that was popular in the in the nineteenth century and then early twentieth in which a well, it's it's the utopia frame narrative. Um, guy from normal world stumbles into this lost civilization that's completely different from oh, ours yeah. in ways uh-huh. that seem very pointedly ideological. Light like yeah. Candide. Uh, yeah, uh-huh. but by the nineteenth century, it's by the nineteenth century, it seems as if they'd all boiled down to, and he stumbles into a society where people don't eat meat, don't care about money, and have stopped hitting each other. So it's a novel-length John Lennon song. Basically. <laughs> so it is possible for utopias to get boiled down to tired trips, too. Oh, oh no, absolutely. I, I oh, I wouldn't deny that. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. But again, I mean, you know, what Michael keeps pointing to, and I, I think he's absolutely right, is that one of the marks of literature that sticks with you is complexity, whether that be plot complexity or moral complexity. Uh, or psychological complexity for that matter, for that matter, pardon me. Uh, and I mean, that's something that the lazy dystopia doesn't do well. Mm. Yeah. Well, leaving, well, actually, we're not even going to leave those. We're going to leave, (laughs) we're just going to turn to a slightly more pointed one. Um, Michael, I, I almost hesitate to bring this up, but hey, this is a dystopia. Things are out of whack. Um, we need to watch them spiral out of control. Um, we've just endured another presidential election season. Hooray for the American people for surviving it. <laughs> and it seems to me that our political our political system is fueled by dystopic visions. Um, you know, it's... it's it. you know, yeah, I mean... Uh, it's either Paul Ryan pushing elderly people off of a medical uh, off of a medical care cliff, or it's Obama pushing toddlers off of a fiscal cliff. Don't forget you know? the death panels. Yes, yes, cliffs and panels. It's all that. But <laughs> you know, is this just a form of exaggerating an election stakes, or is there something more serious going on? Why is it that we that that our parties just seem to think in terms of dystopias? I mentioned this in one of our previous political episodes, and I can't remember which one it is, but uh, this is nothing new. The Adams-Jefferson election, the second presidential election, mm-hmm. uh, was full of the same thing. Jefferson said if Adams wins, uh, he's going to rule us like a king. Adams said if Jefferson wins, Bibles would be burned in the street. <laughs> so whatever it is, whatever's happening, it is not a contemporary phenomenon. This is something that has always marked American politics, and it's always been just this stupid, I would say. It's always... <laughs> we're invoking dystopian tropes to keep us from thinking, or keep mm-hmm. other people from thinking anyway. If if you paint Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan as mustache-twirling villains who were going to uh, personally impregnate every woman in the in the country and make her carry it to term... If you in paint, a binder. Yeah, if you uh, if you paint if you paint <laughs> President Obama as a uh, as the Joker from The Dark Knight, yeah, uh, who's going to come by and oh, I don't even know what they think he's going to do except make them secede. Uh, both of the, 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 these are these are ways of avoiding actual conversation about issues, actual conversation about candidates, actual conversation about the system itself. So in that sense, they're the laziest dystopias of all. 
mm-hmm. the you know the world will be terrible forever and ever and ever if this election doesn't go the way we want it to. Of course, you know right. what doesn't raise campaign funds is uh, nuance. Your your well, your life Reason. is going to be largely <laughs> the same no matter who wins, which is the mm-hmm. truth. Yeah. I mean, if my life is different now than it was at the beginning of Obama's term, but not because of anything Obama did, but because I have a different job, I'm at a different stage <laughs> in my life. Other than that, yeah. it's largely the same. I don't think he had much to do with it, for good or mm-hmm. for bad. Well, you know, marginal improvement in certain limited areas, which we hope you're interested in over the course of four years, is a terrible thing to run on. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the, the the thirty second TV ad just doesn't play that way. <laughs> yeah, see, see, I mean, it, it, it has to run on the utopia dystopia vision. The the, the sad thing mm-hmm. is that so many people buy into it. Right, and of course, what's interesting is that you know the the really good dystopian novels, and I'm and I'm doing this ham fistedly, David. I'll admit, so I can bring Aldous Huxley in, uh, like Brave New it. World. You know, I mean, actually present a far more complex picture of you know the world gone to hell right uh because in brave new world you know i mean uh it's not that the political leaders are oppressing the people with you know jack boots and batons uh but it's that the people want to be oppressed you know here we are now entertain us right it's the uh, grand inquisitor uh, yeah yeah exactly exactly and you know uh you know, speaking of, you know, dystopian tropes, which if done badly are really bad. I mean, you know, compare the scene in Brave New World where, you know, Joe the Savage, you know, trashes, you know, basically overturns the tables in the temple because that's what Huxley was playing on there. And, you know, the people getting their psychotropic drugs revolt against them. They want to kill him because he is taking away their comfort. Take that on one hand, which is, I mean, a very complex psychological scene uh compare that to the rise of palpatine in star wars episode three which is one of you know which is another rather ham-fisted dystopia right uh where you know palpatine stands up and says we're going to turn you into a galactic empire and everyone cheers yay (laughs) yay galactic empire you don't look creepy at all yeah (laughs) (laughs) and and, you know i mean you can kind of see i mean right there you know, the difference between a well-executed dystopian vision with humanity at its core uh, versus a presidential campaign, which is basically what Star Wars Episode Three was. You know, it's, you know, don't vote for Palpatine and Anakin because so, they're bad guys. <laughs> awesome. So maybe we need to, like, put down The Handmaid's Tale and Atlas Shrugged and go watch Idiotocracy or something. Idiocracy. So yes, that. Now there's I've, I've there's a dystopia you can out. believe in. I always want to put a T in there. What is idiocracy? It's Help a me. Mike here. Judge movie, the premise of which is because smart people don't have as many children as stupid people, the world is going to get incrementally stupider. <laughs> and so yeah. uh, Luke Wilson, who's kind of a dummy in 2006 or whenever, uh, accidentally gets frozen and wakes up, I think it's a thousand years in the future, where he's the smartest man who ever lived. Gotcha. Okay. And uh, yeah, it's it's a pretty funny, biting satire. But yeah, all right, they, all right. basically, people live reality shows. For I mean, that 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 that's like all all they do is 
I mean, they 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 are wearing the same clothes, but it's because that's what's in style right now. The um, they, okay, they, so it's kind of like drink, Wally they, then. They don't have water. They don't even water their plants. They use uh, energy drinks to water their plants. The president, <laughs> oh, the president is a professional wrestler named Comacho. <laughs> yeah. Oh gosh, and and David, since you mentioned Handmaid's Tale, I just want to point out to our listeners that you know, uh, not every. Uh, not every dystopia is a right-wing paranoia fest. I mean, Handmaid's Tale, Dear Heavens, what a preachy novel. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I you know, you know my wife. I mean, that's one of her favorite books. Really? Oh my goodness! I mean, I, I, you know, I mean, you know, irrespective of what you say about the politics, set that aside for a second. I mean, uh, I mean, this is just so ham-fistedly flat. I mean, you know, uh, I mean, all of the ruling class are uniformly hypocritical and wicked. Uh, all of the oppressed women are uniformly golden hearted. Uh, I mean, there's just no psychological complexity to it at all. Victoria, if you want to comment on the blog and tell me what an idiot I am, I'd be glad to hear it. But I, I, mean, I find I, very few writers as self-satisfied as Margaret Atwood, though. Oh, uh, I mean, man. This, this is I, a woman who is very, very pleased with herself. Right, right. Well, and I mean, you know, I mean, that really is, I mean, a political campaign in novel form. Well, and doesn't uh, that kind of compare to another woman novelist who was very, very pleased with herself? I mean, you're talking about I mean, I did. Yeah, I did reference do, Atlas do, Shrugged. Do you, do you consider her a novelist? <laughs> well, what she wrote, approx- I mean, she wrote a novel, so yeah. Now, I, I've not read Atlas Shrugged, but w- from what I've heard about it, it is more an attempt at a utopia than a dystopia. But, I mean, I, like I said, I haven't read it. Have either of you guys taken on that beast? Well, I, I mean, it's I about 800 ch- pages, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah I, wanted to, I, I wanted to check myself, but, you know, uh, Wiki, Wikipedia calls it a dystopia in the, in, the, in the first sentence. Oh, interesting. Okay. No, it's, it's a dystopia. Uh, you have the... the the noble architect who can't do what he wants to do because because of there's so much government control. Oh, okay, okay. And see, I was thinking, you know, the plot line that always gets rehearsed to me is that the noble architect goes off and founds the perfect community out in the mountains where the creative people can be creative without government oppression. Yeah, but a lot of times that does happen. Um in a dystopia, you've got the the people reading books by the river at the end of Fahrenheit Fahrenheit 451. Ah, oh, good point. Good point. Okay. Okay. Or, or even, I mean, even the Matrix has that community outside the computer. Zion. <laughs> oh, it's almost like that's a metaphor, dude. Huh. <laughs> you, you know, you know what the Matrix is like. Is like it's like a picture. It's like a picture drawn by people who possess only sharpies and highlighters. <laughs> it's like it's like if the only piece of philosophy anybody had ever read is the first two meditations from uh Descartes and uh and Plato's <laughs> cave. That, that that's what that movie is. Hmm. Oh gosh. Nothing against the first two meditations of Descartes and Plato's cave, by the way. Right, right. <laughs> they just don't have a whole lot of leather jackets and sunglasses. Right. Maybe that's what they need. <laughs> Uh, okay, well let's let's start downshifting. Um, in our realism episode, Nathan, um, Michael asked us to what degree Christians can use or embrace 
um, the literary or artistic vision that is realism. Mm-hmm. Um, well, this is another literary artistic vision. Um, so to what degree can we em- embrace the dystopia? Is this a kind of story that can coexist with the kinds of stories that we want to tell? Well, my reaction to this is mixed, uh, which is why I would make an awful dystopian author. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But on the one hand, I think there is a genuine value to looking at uh, the consequences of ideas, to borrow Richard Weaver's famous phrase. Uh, I mean, it is true that the the desires that we cultivate through our cultural practices on a large scale do shape our human existence. There's no denying that. Uh, you know, the fact of the matter is that, you know, almsgiving was something that was at the very least universally expected and sometimes required. Uh, when that shifts into an invisible system of taxation that comes out of your paycheck automatically, that cultural practice alters our consciousness, right? Uh, there's no longer the sense that, Uh, I am putting coins into a coffer so that the poor can eat. It's more of, you know, a system where people can sometimes even with a straight face say taxation is theft. Right. Um, So, I mean, on that on that note, you know, I definitely don't want to discount the dystopian impulse to say, uh, let's take this and, you know, do a, a big old novel length reductio absurdum and show what happens if we take this bad idea and run with it, okay? On the other hand, you know, as we've been hitting on all through the episode here, uh, the really good and really powerful dystopia requires uh, a complex humanity at its core. Uh, And it's one of those things where, you know, on one hand, I do want to talk about systemic evil. On the other hand, I also want to remember that the line between good and evil uh, ultimately runs down the middle of my heart. Mm. And, you know, uh, like I said, I mean, and, and as Michael said, I mean, really, I, I shouldn't claim credit for this. He's the one who got us on this track. Uh, one of the faults of, you know, one of the truly great dystopias, 1984, uh, is that that line between good and evil, you can kind of see it in Julia's heart and maybe even a little bit in Winston's, but as far as the jackbooted thugs, they don't have a line. Uh, there is no goodness to them. They have lost that Boethian vision that all evil is misdirected goodness. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, uh, I, yeah, and, and David, of course, I had to bring Boethius in because I think I've gone through it two episodes without mentioning him. Uh, but, <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I think that as with realism, uh, we as Christians can give uh, two cheers, maybe a cheer and a half for dystopia. Michael, what do you think? Oh, I I agree. Uh, I, uh, I I'm I'm I think dystopia that doesn't include some element of self condemnation is of limited value. But I think books that don't include some element of self condemnation are of limited value. Uh, so, in other words, the more you enjoy the dystopia, the more it uh, the more it makes you feel good about yourself or bad about other people. Uh, the more skeptical you should be of it. Amen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the the more you read a dystopia and say, yeah, this is totally what's going to happen when they're in charge. <laughs> uh, the more it's not exposing the line of good and evil in your own soul. Mm-hmm. The more you're the more you're putting that line outside yourself. Um. 
but uh, but we still have you know we still have a dystopia like what happened to the Shire, um, you know. So I I think I I think it can be done where, you know, you do. You do suggest how it is that you go from Lotho Baggins with his best intentions becoming Big Brother, mm-hmm. um, and you know. Sheriffs who got into it just because they wanted a nice job where they could have a good walk during the day and see people <laughs> becoming the guys with the jack boots. Um, you know that that there there are dystopias that do remind you that that border is in your own heart, not 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 outside of you. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, the thing that that's that's so grim to me about dystopias is how ultimate. Um, they all that how ultimate they always seem to imagine political ideology as being. Mm, okay, that that a, a political ideology is going to absolutely crush all of the humanity out um, of everyone, which you know, national socialism was awful, but there were still German humans. Mm-hmm. You know, the Soviet Union, especially, you know, especially was terrible. But there were still human beings there. Right. You know, I think there's something so ultimately pessimistic about the dystopia that that also isn't true. Um, because oh, it's interesting. It, because I think it makes it makes the kind of damage that a that that a political ideology can do so ultimate as if it can ultimately rob us of um the divine image stamped on us and mm-hmm. turn us and and turn us into beasts and i th- i it i i think that's maybe a little bit of the dystopia buying too much into modernism's faith in the mechanisms of society to fashion individuals in the way that it wants hmm. if if that makes sense i don't know I just kind of stumbled onto that while I was listening to you guys. <laughs> I'm going to have to camp on that. Maybe I'll have to report back after it's mold for a while. There you go. Anywho, anything else we want to say or do we want to shift to the end? Shift to the end, man. Okay, shifting to the end. Um, well, if uh, if we left out your favorite dystopia, and we probably did, if we dissed your favorite dystopia, and we probably did, we're talking to you, uh, Victoria, <laughs> and Matrix fans. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yes, and, and and Matrix fans. Um, uh, absolutely, contact us. Uh, leave leave comments on the show notes when they post on our blog, ChristianHumanist.org. Send us email at thechristianhumanist at gmail dot com or post on our Facebook page. Um, if you liked us, like us on Facebook too. Make it official, um, Facebook official. Um, also, if you're still getting at this through iTunes, you uh, we 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 like ratings there too. Um, and that that's that's good. It helps us ascend the scale of being that is iTunes U. Um, but what do we got? What do we got going on next week? Is it uh, who's at the helm? Is it you, Nathan? Yes, I shall be the captain for a week. Uh, uh, and well, I'm we taking going? a cue from uh, Brad Warfield back when he uh, wanted to be identified as Boethius Battlefield on the blog. 
Uh, but now he's uh, coming after me personally on the Federalist Papers, so I'm calling you by name, Brad. Uh, <laughs> and also from the gentleman who emailed us, Michael, remind Carter, me of his Carter name again. Carter Stepper. Carter Stepper, thank you. Uh, we have done genre fiction episodes in the past, and we're going to do another one next time. Uh, we are going to do Christian literature. Oh, fun. Now, how's that different from what we've always done? Uh, lots more Frank Peretti. Ah, okay, okay. <laughs> All right. All right, so, lots more Frank listeners, Peretti. listeners, and... don't be left behind. <laughs> oh, good Lord. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, okay. Um, Got to wrap this thing up. Well, listeners, uh, thank you for doing that. Thank you for being our listeners. Uh, I look forward to talking about Frank Peretti and not being left behind next week. Uh, in the meanwhile, I wish all of you grand weeks, and uh, I, David Grubbs, on behalf of Michael Farmer, on behalf of Nathan Gilmore, um, uh, well, wish you a grand week again, because that's the way I always end, and leave you with the words of Martin Luther to let your sin be strong, to let your faith be strong. 